0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. I feel like I should whisper. Good morning. I'm going to try really hard not to cough loud into, yeah, if you would grab me glass water, that'd be fabulous. Thank you. We have been uh, passing around the sickies and I meet with a group of guys on Sunday afternoons and last Sunday, I just have to share this because the guys that, are, that know what I'm talking about, it will be super funny for them because we were talking flu shots and Mr. Know-It-All here uh, was making my case for why I don't take a flu shot and yet here I am and so, and I'm like, I never get sick and I ate those words as quick as they came out of my mouth, <laughs> so here I am, sick, feeling miserable. So uh, I'll try really hard not to cough loud in your ears. I apologize. Hey, as we're getting into the Christmas season, one of the things is uh, at churches at different times, uh, different churches will kind of uh, adopt a cause, per se, at Christmas. And there's a variety of things we could do. Thanks. You can just sit there. Um, and different things that Real Life on the Palouse has done. In Moscow, they're teaming up with the foster child, uh, foster care program over there, and they've got a lot of folks in the Moscow campus that are deeply connected to the foster community over there, and so that's a a thing that was a really good fit for them at their campus. And as we talked about what we would do in Pullman, um, I felt like for us, where we're at uh, as a church, and with so much new staff, and us getting to know so many new people. I just can't do music stands. (laughs) One of the things I thought would be neat is rather than have a really um, specific uh, thing that we would do as a church, like feeling sort of program heavy, that we would do more along the lines of people, relationship heavy. And so what I mean is we would like for all of our care groups, our men's and women's small groups, the youth ministry, um, even in children's as, at a creative level that we could with kids, we're going to look for specific people or uh, a place that we could serve that someone in the group has some relational ca- uh, connection to so that you know, you get together in your care group and you're going to talk about who are we going to bless for Christmas? Who are we going to serve for Christmas? That might be you guys know of someone that could help use some help financially, maybe you as a group come alongside and help them financially. Maybe it's um, serving them, helping get their uh, tree and decorations up for a, a person that's maybe elderly or would have a hard time doing it, that type of thing. And we kind of led the way as a staff last uh, week all of our uh, Pullman team got together and went and served at the Regency uh, Assisted Living Facility. And the ladies in our team learned just how bad all of the guys are at decorating. And uh, look on my Facebook page, you'll see some pictures of us attempting to make decorations look pretty. Thankfully for Lanny and Harmony there with us or we would have been in big trouble. It would have been, they might not have, it might not have really been that big of a blessing if it was just us guys, right? We know how to use zip ties, we learned that, but we had fun and we served together as a team, and we 're going to look for other opportunities to do that so we'll talk more about it as the time goes on, and i 'll send stuff out to the to the care groups and the the other small groups meeting, but just be thinking about uh, the group you 're in, who could you come alongside, who could you serve and The heart behind it is to really love on people and be present with them and bless them this season. It's not about how many pictures can we get back to show everybody. It's neat to see pictures, but we're not doing it so that we get status or that we look good. We want to serve people because we love them and we care about them. And through relationship, we actually have good news to share with them, right? Sound good? All right. Hey, we are starting in this Advent series. And if you remember from our time in Revelation, Advent means the arrival, right? The the thing that was building up to an event. There was all those Advents for the Caesars. And the Advent series in a Christian church is typically about four weeks leading up to a Christmas Eve service. And each week, we'll get the opportunity to learn some important things about how Christ, how God became a man among us. There's so many neat lessons that we can learn as we look back on how that happened, okay? This first week, we're focusing on hope. And not just any kind of hope, but a long-awaited hope. A long-awaited hope. And we're going to look at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But before we dive into the story, I want to give you some context, right? I want to kind of help you see the story that's going on around the story because as we dig into the scripture, it'll, make, it'll just shine light on what's really going on. So, gosh, I feel like I just ran a marathon. I can hardly talk. I'm over here like panting heavy just to talk. Um, so what's going on with them is that they are, the Jews, under Roman rule. Like we learned in the Revelation series, we got a lot of context for what it was like to be a Jew or a a God follower under the uh, rule of Rome. And it was tough for them. And because of the way the Romans treated them, it made it very, very difficult for them to uh, live out their faith openly and safely. And so that's sort of the context of what's going on with this story as it starts off, there's a couple other things that's important for us to know. Culturally, at the time, it was like the most important thing or the, the, the biggest desire, the greatest hope of any Jewish girl was that she would be the instrument by which God would bring the Messiah to the earth. And in the first century, the the greatest blessing anyone could give a Jew was to say, may your daughter become pregnant with the Messiah. There's no greater thing you could have said to a Jewish man and woman than may your daughter become pregnant with the Messiah. And because of this, many parents, when they found out they had a boy, would name him Joshua. Joshua. And that translates roughly, God is salvation, or something like the Lord is uh, our deliverer. They had this great hope in their circumstances that God was going to deliver them from the situation they were in under Roman oppression and Roman rule. And more than ever, that was prevalent in the culture, okay? There was a couple other things that were also true culturally, There was, the Jews had a theology that said, if good things are happening to you, God is happy with you, and if bad things are happening to you, then God is mad at you, okay? Now, it's important to understand, this is a cultural truth at the time, it's not a biblical truth right? Like, I learned a cultural truth when we moved to Pullman. If you live in Pullman, you are a fan of WSU and the Cougars, right? That means that you're okay. If you live in Pullman and you're not a fan of the Cougars, there's something wrong with you, right? That's not a cultural truth in Boise. It's unique to here, right? see the difference? So these are cultural truths, not biblical truths. So culturally, there were two ways that the Jews knew that God was mad at someone. Number one is if you had leprosy, and number two is if you were barren or couldn't have a child. And so if someone had leprosy or if someone was barren and couldn't conceive a child, everybody in the community, without even having to say it, all collectively already could agree that something was wrong with that person. They, they were not doing something right. God was mad at him. So with that kind of context, a little bit of an understanding of kind of where we're at when we start the story, let's jump in. And we're going to go through this uh, story in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to go through little chunks of it, and then I'm going to pop in and out of the story. So let's look at the first part in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So you've got to imagine the confusion that they must have felt, right? They are blameless in the sight of God, well into their old age, obeying all the commands and decrees of God, and yet everybody that knew them thought God was what? Mad at them. Imagine, like kind of put yourself in her shoes, imagine what it must have felt like to love God and to to truly believe that you're doing everything you're supposed to do to honor him and to follow his obeys and commands. And yet, when you step foot out of your house, every eye looks at you with judgment. Every person looks at you questioning what, are, what do we not know about you? There must be some secret sin. Let's look at verse 8. It says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, we're gonna chase a little rabbit trail here um, to kind of help us see a little chronology of things that happen about like when John was conceived and when Jesus was conceived. And it's, it's kind of a fun little rabbit trail. We'll come back to it, but let's, let's look at this real quick. Let's kind of look at some of the timing of some of the things that are going on, okay? So Zechariah is in the order of Abijah. his service is late May to mid uh, June right he goes home to fulfill the prophecy after his service of his wife becoming pregnant you'll figure out what that meant okay she gets pregnant late June she hides for five months July August September October November in the sixth month December Mary gets pregnant Nine months later is early to mid-September, and this means that Jesus is conceived right around uh, the time of the Festival of Lights or the Feast of Lights, and he's born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, a lot of us are familiar with Hanukkah, the, the concept, the word, and we vaguely know that it's some Jewish celebration, right? Hanukkah was the, celebra- the celebration that was attached to the Feast of Lights or Festival of Lights, it was called. What they were celebrating was the rededication of the temple. This happened about 160 years before Jesus, okay? So roll back with me. About 160 years before Jesus, the Jews rededicate their temple, and that is a momentous occasion in the history of their faith. And each year... They celebrate that rededication, very much like in America we have a 4th of July, right? What are we celebrating? Our independence, right? So they celebrate it, and this celebration is a festival called the Festival of Lights, and it's called the Festival of Lights because each night on this, on this festival that lasts for eight days, they light a candle. And each candle has a special meaning, and each candle goes in a special candle holder called a menorah, right? Okay, so they put these candles in the menorah. So that's the context for what was going on in the world, this, this festival of lights at the time that Jesus was conceived when, when the Lord came to Mary. And now let's look at John chapter 1 and see a little bit about what does John say about Jesus coming to the world. Let's look at this. It's just sort of cool when we start to see context, right? When we start to see some of the story around the story of what's going on and it brings God's word to light and gives it a depth and richness that we wouldn't have seen had we not known some of the other parts and pieces going on. So here in God's providence, he brings... Jesus into the world and calls him a light of the world while all of God's people are celebrating with these different lights that had significant meaning to him. It's just kind of a neat thing to know a little bit more about. Okay, we're going to jump back into Luke. I told you we're going to take a couple rabbit trails, so we'll jump back into Luke. And once uh, Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, This is really important that we take a little break here and learn a little bit more about what's going on because these are a couple of sentences in the first chapter of Luke that we could just read as these little facts. Like, Zechariah was in this order of priests once he was chosen and he got to go in and do this offering. And you're like, yep, and it just sounds like a normal run-of-the-mill everyday thing. And it couldn't be farther from the truth, okay? Zechariah was from the tribe of Levi, who were the priests. At the time of this uh, event in Israel, there were somewhere around approximately 20,000 male descendants of the tribe of Levi who were involved in the priesthood. There were way too many people approved to be in the priesthood to serve in the temple. So they devised a schedule that would allow each family to serve twice a year. But here's the trick. When your family's time came up to serve, only one person from your family was chosen. And they would cast lots to see who in your family would be chosen. And one person would be chosen. So it's essentially a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that a priest would be actually chosen and get the honor and blessing of going into the temple to offer the offering of incense. It's not just a, oh, we read this and he did this one time. No, this was, we're reading about what was probably the biggest day in Zachariah's life. Never in his life had there been a day that he was so blessed and so honored and so full of excitement to serve God in this day. And so we'll look at the temple up here, there's a couple pictures that the big tall building in the center is where he would go inside of, and then there's a woman's court and a court for Israelites, and kind of in the middle area where that huge dark door is, in front of that they would offer burnt offerings as sacrifices, and the priests that would get the opportunity to go in and make this offering, they would take coals out of those pits where they would burn the burnt offerings, they would take these coals that were still hot, they'd put them in this little golden bowl, And then they would take incense and put it on top of the coals. And then there was like a little chain hooked up to it. And they would go inside the temple where only they could go. And they would go in the temple. And in the temple, there was an altar of incense. And behind the altar of incense was the veil that separated the inner temple from the Holy of Holies. And so they would go before the veil in front of the altar of incense. And they would swing this little golden bowl around. And this smoke would rise up. And it was this really awesome symbolism of what our prayers look like as they rise up to the Lord. It's like our prayers, it was symbolizing how our prayers, the prayers of God's people, rise up to the Lord like a sweet smelling smoke. Like a beautiful fragrant smell to him. I don't know if you remember in Revelation, but we talked about this in Revelation. If you want to just jot down in your notes, Revelation 5.8, and read that one on your own time. It's just a really cool affirmation of this picture of our prayers going up before the Lord. And it was the custom that uh, on the outside of the temple, in this court, And around the outside of the courtyard, God's people would gather and wait for the priests to come out. He would go in, make his offering of incense before the altar of incense, and he would come out, and it was customary that he would give uh, God's blessing on all the people that were gathered out there. And so they would wait anxiously. It was like a big deal to see, you know, which family got chosen, which guy from the family got chosen. What is he going to say? What did he hear from the Lord? What, what is he going to share with us? What blessing will he say? It was a big, big deal. So we're going to jump back into Luke now that we kind of have a little bit better context for what was going on. Okay, so let's go back in there. It says, while well, he's inside, right? So he's in there, he's doing his offering. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And it's like, what prayer? What, what was Zechariah praying? And if we know of their circumstances, that they were barren and couldn't conceive a child, his whole life, his whole adult life, his prayer had to have been, Lord, give us a son. Lord, give us a son. And imagine on this day, maybe the only day in his life, well into his old age, that he gets chosen by Lot to go in and offer this sacrifice. He's in the temple of anything on Zechariah's mind. Let me tell you what he was praying. Lord, closer to you now than I've ever been, right? Give us a son. And here this angel appears and says, your prayers have been heard. Your wife is going to be pregnant, become pregnant with a son, and you're to name him John. And John meant God is a gracious giver. God is a gracious giver. Let's jump back in the story. He says he will be the joy, uh, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, you, you got to think, like if you put yourself in the shoes of the characters in this story, right? Zechariah, of all people, it sort of feels like at first it's like that it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal that he's asking this question back. Like his whole life he's served God. He's obeyed the Lord. He's been right with God, followed God's commands and decrees, and yet God has held back a child. And so when he hears in his old age that he's going to have a child, he, he's like, well, are you sure And you can sense the frustration with Gabriel, right? I'm Gabriel, I stand at the right hand of God and he sent me to tell you this. Sort of like, you don't even have the right to doubt. And what Gabriel was noticing in Zechariah was not a question about, hey I'm an old guy, really old. Are you sure this is going to work, this whole getting pregnant thing? That wasn't what he was asking. What what the angel saw in Zechariah was a lack of belief, a doubt in his heart. And because of that, the angel told him, you're going to go mute, and you're going to be silent until the appointed time, until everything's come to pass. Like, you're going to lose your voice the rest of the way through this. Let's go back to Luke. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs to them, right? He's playing Pictionary. Uh, But he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And it confirms for her and Zachariah that what the angel said to him was true. And yet, in spite of that, she remains hidden in seclusion for five months. I mean, I would speculate probably as long as she possibly could before people would start to notice that there was this baby growing. And it's like, why? After all these years, the thing that they'd longed for, why stay hidden for so long? I think we can kind of find the answer in what she says at the end of the passage. She's saying, the Lord has done this. He has found favor. But what she's not saying, at least not right here at this time, what she's not saying, she's not saying, thank you, Lord, for blessing me with this child. She's not saying, thank you, Lord, for the miracle that I was able to become pregnant in my old age. What she is saying is the Lord has found favor and seen fit to do this and he has blessed me and he has taken away my disgrace among the people. Imagine a lifetime of living around people that think that you have done something wrong. That don't believe that you're actually right with God that look at you a certain way every time they see you. Because surely, God is mad at you. And to come out of that lifetime of guilt and people doubting your faith and making assumptions about you, I think it took her a while to gain her confidence. It took her a while to realize that not only did God bless her with a child, but the thing that was on her heart is that God blessed her with removing the disgrace that other people saw when they looked at her. A lot of us want God to work in our lives, right? We want to know God's will and be in God's will. We want God to show up in our lives and, and use us to do great things, and yet, are we willing to endure and remain faithful no matter how long it takes? And I think if we were to hear a lot of stories, we would hear a lot of stories of people that have felt similar shame and guilt and frustration as they have Tried genuinely to follow Christ, as people like you have tried genuinely to be Jesus' people. But the frustration that comes when people that know you don't believe you, they doubt your commitment, they doubt your faith. They maybe see you in a certain environment and get a little snippet of your life out of context. Then they see you in a different environment and get a little snippet of your life or a thing you said. And they start to make judgments and assumptions about who you are and as a result about the God you say you follow. They heard that you go to church. They heard that you read your Bible or they know that you are a church person or a Christian person. But they take little samples of your life and hold them against you. Like, Like somehow they have the right to say what you are or aren't. And they're really holding things against us that they have no idea about, right? They don't know, what they're, they don't know the word. They don't know the truth. But it still doesn't change the, f- the, f- the fact that it, it's painful. It's hard sometimes to be a Christian. It's even harder when it hits closer to home when you become a Christian and the people that know you very well, like your family your closest friends that you knew growing up or you went to school with, when they know you and they know your good stories, your bad stories, your really bad stories, anybody have any bad stories you wish nobody knew about? Too many of them, right? They know those stories. They know the things you've done that have really were embarrassing things you wish you could take back. And now you're a Christian, and you're learning what it looks like to follow God and to follow Jesus and become more like him, and and you have the help of the Holy Spirit. You know you're not the same person you used to be. You've been born again, and with God's help, with his spirit, you're learning how to walk as a Jesus follower. And you're, you're slowly but surely becoming more like Christ and more in love with him and less attached to your old stories and your old life. And yet when people that really know you, especially the ones that are like family and dear friends, they just grab your old stories and hold them against you. And they doubt that what you have is really real. Or worse yet, they act like they're embarrassed by you. Or they talk down to you like you're sort of less intelligent than them because how could you believe in such a foolish thing? Like, it's sort of a nice thing to believe in. I mean, it's not going to hurt you, but, I mean, you're sort of silly to believe it. Sometimes it is hard to stay faithful, right? I imagine putting ourselves in the shoes with like Zechariah and Elizabeth, like day in and day out, following the commands of the Lord, loving God, caring about each other, and yet having people around them look at them with judgment. And yet they stayed faithful. And through their faithfulness, God is bringing about the Biggest thing he'll ever do in the history of the earth until he comes back through this one couple and their faithfulness day in and day out. God is for us. He's not against us. And no matter what other people say, no matter what other people's opinions are, no matter how many stories they used to know about us, we need to keep coming back to our foundation, what we know is true, where who we are in Christ, and to not be discouraged in our faithfulness to the Lord. It's so important that we know these stories, that we're fed on truth, Day in and day out, we put the scripture in our heart and our mind because in times of struggles, when people, especially that are close to us, say things that are hurtful to us or doubt our faith or wonder how we could believe something like this, we can go back to God's word and see how God's people have dealt with the same thing time in and time out throughout history. And those stories bring us strength and encouragement. They affirm for us what we believe And they remind us that the same God that worked out circumstance after circumstance, dealt with enemies, worked out situations with friends and family, is the same God that we're following today. It helps us to stay the course and stay faithful to our Lord, even when it's tough, right? It's going to bring us up to the communion time, and so they're going to do the buckets first. You guys are getting to be old hat at this now. They're going to start in the middle, and so if you're going to serve communion or help with those, they'll just pass the buckets down the middle and then just pass them all the way down your aisle to your left and right, straight out. And uh, again, drop the cards in there. We sure appreciate getting those cards. Um, And if you want to drop your tither offering in there, you sure can, that's fine. All right, while that stuff's getting passed around, let's kind of look at some little uh, nuggets we can chew on, okay? These are in your notes. We put them in there for you because we want to make it easy for you to take something away from the sermon each week and kind of chew on it. Let it um, work its way into your daily devotions. Let it work its way into your small group discussions. Maybe it's just something personally that's struck you that, you know, you want to stick on the bathroom mirror so you remember it first thing in the morning this week. But that's why we put these in here. So let's look at the first one up here. Our faithful endurance may very well be what God uses to change the world. Our faithful endurance may very well be what God uses to change the world. Do we believe, like, that God through our faithfulness that God could bring about amazing, life-changing, world-changing. God can do amazing things through those of us that remain faithful. Let's look at the next one. Sometimes faithfulness is the greatest act of hope. Faithfulness can be the greatest act of hope. Think about it like this. Faithfulness puts legs to our hope. James talked about the same concept. He said, if you show me somebody's faith that has no works or actions attached to it, their faith is dead. But if you show me somebody that has faith with actions, their faith is alive and well. When we have a hope for a king to return, we have a hope that the gospel is true. We have a hope that that God is real. And we put it to action by living out our faith day in and day out. Let's look at the last one up there. Hope begins when we open ourselves up to the possibility that tomorrow can be better than today. The idea that tomorrow can be better than today. And that really sums up how Zachariah and Elizabeth had to live. They had a hope that if they stayed faithful, that tomorrow could be better than today. That's why we take communion each and every week. Because we remember that we can have that hope because of what Christ did for us. Because God loved us so much that he did send his son. That his death on the cross did pay the penalty for sin once and for all. And that through faith in Christ, we can be saved. And not only saved but we can have God with us, Emmanuel, each and every day, his spirit with us. That's why we do this each and every week, is to remember what God did for us, but also what we have as a result of it. We have a relationship with God as a loving father now, not just in heaven, but now today, we have his Holy Spirit to help guide us and navigate this life. That's why we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he told him to eat this in remembrance of him. And then he took the cup in the same way and he told him this was represented the cup of the new covenant That was his blood shed for them. Let's take the cup and remember him. God, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for what you did through Elizabeth and Zechariah and their faithfulness, Lord, as you bring through them John, the one you chose to prepare the way. Help us to learn from their character and their lifestyle and their commitment. Let us um, desire to be like them, Lord. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, lifeorotp.com.